We are a band of brothers, diverse yet unified, aligned to pursue the truth, resolute in our commitment. We are stronger together, and you are one of us. This is the Brotherhood Podcast. Brothers, welcome to the Brocast. Today we get to tune in to the March Breakfast with Stephen Posey. He questioned our manliness this month and spoke about how anger is one of the most fundamental problems in our lives. Let's tune in and listen to his message to the Brotherhood. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here this morning. Um, I want to take just a quick second to draw attention to the fact that Johnny started this out of just, an, uh, just a hunger to serve the men of Church on the Move. Um, he didn't ask for permission necessarily. No one tapped him on the shoulder and said, you have to do this. Uh, how many ever years ago this whole thing started? Six years ago, um, it started in a, in a room across campus with just a, a couple dozen guys. And look at what God has done. And he's only, we're only just getting started. So would you guys help me honor Johnny and, and the team for putting this together? This year, especially with, when any of our speakers come, Johnny and Mark and the team get together with the speakers, Witt included, and just say, hey, here's what's going on with the men of Church on the Move, the men of Tulsa, um, but wh- wh- what do you see? And uh, as I understand it, when they talked to Witt, he said, this year, I think it'd be good just to focus on what does it mean to be a man? What is biblical manhood? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Who's the manliest man in the Bible? Who's the manliest man in the Bible? I'll give you just a second to think about that. Who's the manliest man you can think of in the Bible? There's some pretty, pretty manly guys. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Lamech, who's not necessarily a good, good, good guy. In fact, he's not a good guy. Lamech uh, was maybe the first gangster, the first mobster in the Bible. He, he bragged about killing 70 men. Uh, is he the... the ideal man in the Bible. Noah was the first craftsman. If you shook his hand, you knew that he was manlier than you. Moses was maybe the greatest leader in the Old Testament. Samson was the strongest man. David, the giant killer, the warrior musician. Solomon, the philosopher and master builder. Of course, none of those guys are who we're talking about. None of those guys are the guys we think about when we talk about a year of biblical manhood. There's one guy, and his name is Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, in a room this size with guys from disparate backgrounds, you ha- we all have a different picture in our mind when we think about Jesus. Maybe you grew up in a church that uh, had pictures of Jesus on stained glass windows, or maybe you you saw pictures in the Bible. If you Google images of Jesus, you're going to see this pale, frail-looking guy doing some kind of a curveball thing with his hand. That's not the Jesus that you should think of. Jesus was the manliest man, the most human human that ever lived. He could beat you on the golf course. If you don't think of a Jesus who's better at tennis than you, you've got the wrong idea. So why is this important? Why why do we hold Jesus so high? Uh, Isn't it just an impossible standard to attain to? 
I mean, we have, we have a hard enough time comparing ourselves or not comparing ourselves to the men around us to, to measure our own manhood. Why would we hold up this standard and say that's your goal is to be like Jesus? Well, Romans chapter 8, there, there's a guy who really took these, this idea seriously, a guy by the name of Paul. Romans chapter 8, he says this. He says, you have a destiny. I want you to know that. You have a destiny, and that is to be conformed, worked, molded, shaped into the image of Jesus. Now this in the church world is what we call spiritual formation. Uh, It sounds like kind of a fancy church word and it is, but let me take 90 seconds just to unpack it just for a second. Jackson, come on up here. This is my son, Jackson. As Johnny mentioned, I've got an almost 13 year old daughter, Grace. This is my son, Jackson. Jackson, how old are you? How old are you? He said eighth. He said he's eighth. Uh, he knows I, I'm not real happy with how fast he's growing up, so he always says he's in his eighth year of life, just to, just to get me. Uh, so Jackson has an outer self, just like you and I do. Jackson also has an inner self, just like you and I do. Jackson's outer self is receiving a form. Now, some of that was wired into him from birth, from uh, the genetic code that was passed down from Ruth and me. But there are any number of other things that are influencing Jackson's outer form. Some things like the kinds of things he puts in his body, uh, the, the, the food, the water that he drinks, the, the kind of man that he is going to be is in, in part determined by the things he puts inside him. Good or bad, intentional, unintentional, his outer self is receiving a form. But so is his inner self. His inner man is receiving a form. Your inner person is receiving a form. Good or bad, intentional or unintentional, your inner self is receiving a shape and a form. Do you have anything to do with that? Well, the Hebrew word is nefesh. It's, that's this is the word for soul, and it, and it uh, involves your entire self. Uh, interestingly, the word nefesh also has to do with thirst. Your self, your outer self is thirsty. It's craving. Uh, it's like the movie, What About Bob? You got to remember the movie, What About Bob? Bill Murray, I need, I need, I need. That's what your self is saying all the time, inner self and outer self. So your self is receiving a shape. So it's not a matter of whether or not you're into spiritual formation. You are being shaped. Your spirit is being shaped. Your spirit is receiving a form. What determines that? Well, what determines it is what you give your attention to. What, what you see about, what you think about when you think about God is what you're moving toward. What you think about when you think about your future self is what you're moving toward, and that's what's shaping you. The people around you determine what's shaping you. Thank you, Jackson. Go have a seat. Give Jackson a big hand. Thanks, Jackson. Big J. So my job title is content pastor. That doesn't mean anything to anybody. Um, when I told my mom, I texted her, hey, I got a, a, a new job title as content pastor. And she picked up the phone and called me and she said, man, I'm, Stephen, I'm so, I'm so proud of you. You got a new job. Now, but just one question. What is a content pastor anyway? 
lately, they've been talking about changing our job title to spiritual formation pastor. That looks better on a resume than content pastor. But what is it? What are we after? If you are a pastor, what you're after is helping the people around you become more like Jesus. Whether they are outside of the family of God or inside the family of God, we, what we think about all day, every day, is how to help you become more like Jesus, how to surround you with the right people, the right information, the right, teach you about the right practice to, to be shaped into the image of Jesus. By the way, that's what an entire church is for, is to help you become more like Jesus. It's not to hold up some standards so that you can feel guilty about how you're not making it, to, to make you feel shameful. It's to help you become more like Jesus. So today, for the next few minutes, I'm going to talk about something very specific, something very specific that I think we all deal with. But before we do, before we jump into that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege that I have to stand in front of these men who clearly are hungry to become more like you. Help me not to say the things I don't need to say. Help me to say only the things that I need to say. Use my weakness for your strength. May Jesus become real and clear in these next few moments before us. In Jesus' name, amen. About 25 years ago, um, I was on my way to lunch with a friend. I was running late. I was a student at Oral Roberts University, and if you've ever been on the campus of ORU, you know there's no easy way into or off of that campus. Long, winding, narrow roads with, with cumbersome speed bumps and Students driving old janky cars going slow because they're, uh, I don't know, brain of tongs or something. So I'm, by the time I get to the edge of 7777 South Lewis Avenue, I'm already late to where I'm going and I'm a little bit aggravated, a little bit frustrated. I've got a little uh, Honda Prelude, a little five-speed Honda Prelude. It's not a race car, but I can zip in and out of traffic with that thing. And so I think maybe if I just get to, to uh, 71st Street, opens up to four lanes, I can make up some time. Have you ever had one of those days that it just seemed like the universe was conspiring to keep you late? All of South Tulsa was on 71st Street that afternoon. It seemed like everybody was cutting in front of me, people driving slow in the fast lane. Every traffic light was red, and I get to the traffic light, and you look, and the people at the front of the line aren't even close enough to trip the signal. You know what I'm talking about? My frustration turns to aggravation, and I'm just, I'm just starting to feel this little thing, this little thing well up within me. I get to Memorial, and I see a little bit of an opening, so I gun it. And as soon as I do, this 18-wheeler pulls into traffic, cuts off both lanes. I come grinding to a halt as, long as, as well as everybody behind me. My frustration and aggravation turned to indignation. I was mad. I was angry. I, I just went from zero to nine uh, on, on an anger scale just like that. I decided to show him that you don't mess with the guy in the Honda Prelude. <laughs> what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do to this guy? So here's what I did. I pulled in front of him and I slowed down to five miles per hour. Traffic flying by us on the side. 
five miles an hour, 10 miles an hour, 10 miles an hour, five miles an hour. He's right on my tail. He's right on my bumper. And I'm just looking in my mirror, looking at him saying, yeah, that's right. I speed off and forget about the whole thing within a matter of moments. I get up to 61st Street, pull into the turning lane, still bumper-to-bumper traffic, median on my left. Guess who didn't forget about what just happened? Here he comes, driving down the far right lane, laying on the horn, window down, flipping me off, cursing me out, and he puts the thing into park, and he walks over with a sledgehammer. He's furious. He's cursing me out of the top of his lungs. With one hand, he's handling that sledgehammer. This is a guy with Noah-type hands, and he's... He's the kind of anger where he's walking slowly and he's just tapping that thing on my windshield, walking over, coming over all across the front of the windshield. Then he gets to my driver's side window, tapping his, cussing me out. I look up at him and I say, you mad, bro? (laughs) Light turns green and and I take off. I almost lost my life over being late to lunch. Anger almost works. Anger almost works. Has this been your experience? I don't know about you, but I have a long relationship with anger, a lifetime relationship with anger. I asked Jesus in my heart when I was about four years old. I believe that uh, my spirit was regenerated, that I... but I had the life of God inside me. What does it look like to, to live a lifetime following Jesus? My, all my life, I've had real struggles with anger. I like anger. I don't like him coming around all the time. But sometimes when I need a certain kind of thing done, it's just nice to know that I know a guy. I know a guy. Anger is that guy. You don't want him coming around at parties, but you you want to know that he's there. And let's be honest, we're talking about manhood. What more could make you feel like a man than the adrenaline rush that comes with being full, tilt, angry? Makes you feel like a man. About 15 years ago, I was watching college game day. My wife was out shopping for groceries. She had a little BMW convertible, uh, old school BMW convertible. She just loved to put the top down and drive around, take her time. I get a phone call from her. Stephen, somebody, somebody hit me in a traffic light, and, and he's getting away. By the time she finished that sentence, I was already in my car heading that way. Tell me where you are. Tell me where you are. I'm driving down the road as fast as I possibly can, wrong side of the road, running red lights. I finally make it to her, and I didn't go through the process of frustration and aggravation and indignation. I was full tilt rage. By the time I I got there, she had tracked down the guy. Her car was scraping the road as she pulled into the parking lot. The guy was drunk or high or something, under some kind of influence, and he's about to go back onto the road and leave. When I see him and I see my wife, Ruth says, Stephen, he won't pull over. 
I throw my car in the park, I jump out, and I say, pull over! He pulls over. I was kind of surprised, it worked. I don't have a gun, I don't have a knife, I'm not a likes to fight guy, but I got that friend in there. You need a friend sometimes, I know a guy. That guy came out, he said, man, Man, I didn't do anything. I said, I told you to pull over. He said, okay. So he, he, he opens the truck. I said, sit down on the curb. He got out and sat out on the curb. And so did the other guy that I didn't even know was in the passenger seat. <laughs> I walked over to my wife and said, you okay, baby? And, and she looked at me like, whoa baby yeah a couple of moments later a buddy uh, or a, a guy who was watching the whole thing came over and he said hey he's getting up I said I told you to sit down he said I was just getting a cigarette I said you sit down you get him a cigarette I promise that's how it went anger was my friend Anger almost worked. Anger almost worked. These guys didn't have any money. It was, it was not a great situation. But can I tell you something? In both of those situations, and, and, and countless more, where I allowed my anger to overtake me. Sometimes it was through firing off an email that got me in trouble here at work. Sometimes it was an angry look Sometimes it was saying things to people that I love that I will always regret. Anytime I've allowed anger to take over, I've always regretted it. In those two instances, once the adrenaline died down, I was in a state of semi-depression for days. Anger almost works, and that's why we keep it up. You need to know this. The hardest habits to give up on are the ones that almost work. The hardest sins to get rid of are the ones that almost work. The hardest temptations to say no to are the ones that almost work. Pornography almost works, it almost works. Adultery almost works. Alcohol almost works name name, pick your poison it almost works that's why you keep returning to it anger is actually a more fundamental problem than any of those things Dallas Willard said this anger is the most fundamental problem in your life doesn't sound right doesn't seem right where would he get such an idea well the truth is there's not a man in this room that doesn't have some kind of an issue with anger. If I could go through and talk to any of you, go to coffee with any of you individually, I bet you could tell me stories of how anger connects to some of your worst regrets. Some of the worst things you've said, thought, done have been a result of this, this embodied feeling, these habits surrounding anger. Does it seem like the biggest, most important thing? 
But every job you've ever had, every relationship you've ever been in, everything you've wished you hadn't said or done, your buddy anger was there. Anger is, the th- is, is maybe the biggest threat to the things you want most in this life, to the man you want to be. You want to be shaped into the image of Jesus? Let's talk about your anger. How do I know? How can Dallas Willard say that anger is the most fundamental problem in your life? Where does he get that idea? Well, systematically, if you talk about systematic theology, which I know you guys are all into, uh, it wouldn't be, of course, sin. Sin is the biggest problem. And, and, and after that, pride. But where, where does anger fall in? Why do we say anger? Well, right after the first sin, in the reality of this new world, what is the first story we get? Any Bible nerds in here? Anybody know? What comes right after the fall? What's the first story? Two brothers in competition with one another. And what's the issue? Well, we don't have the slides for this, so I'll just read it to you. God had regard for Abel's offering, but for Cain's offering, he had no regard. And so what happened? There's this little sting inside of Cain's mind. He feels it in his body. He looks at his brother. He sees how God is treating him. He sees the place that his brother has. And his first reaction, body, mind, soul, is anger. It says, so Cain wasn't just angry. He's full tilt angry. He's very angry. It says his face fell. And so God said to Cain, you mad, bro? He says, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Listen to what he says. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Cain, there's an opportunity with every anger. In fact, there's there's something that happens when anger presents itself that is a signal to us that something is wrong, right? If you feel pain in your body, it's a signal that something is wrong. Pay attention to it. Jesus, in launching and founding this community of redemption, in the founding documents called the Sermon on the Mount, he deals with this issue. After he teaches his disciples how to pray, talks about a few other things, he starts talking about anger. Matthew chapter 5 Jesus said, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. Cain murdered. You're supposed to be thinking. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Well, it's easy to get behind that. Who wouldn't agree to that? Anybody who murders would be subject to judgment. Then Jesus says this, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister, will also be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to his brother or sister, Racha, is answerable in court. Now that, that, uh, that word, that Hebrew word, Racha, there's not, a, uh, <laughs> there's not an English translation for it, so they just left it in the, in the Aramaic or Hebrew, and it's, 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 a, uh, it's an onomatopoeia, like it's, it's a word made after a sound. Racha, what does that sound like? Years ago, uh, you will not remember this, but we were playing football, flag football. We did this all the time back in the day. In our 20s, you got nothing but time. And so, so we would play flag football. We played basketball, play all the stuff. But we're playing 
uh, football out here at this practice field, and I'm on Witt's team. And this is pre-real Jesus wit, so please, please forgive me for embarrassing you. Uh, I'm on his team, and we're getting thumped. And man, the more we get, I mean, if you know anything about wit, you know he does not like to be, he doesn't like to lose, and neither do I. I mean, who does, right? So, but we're losing, we're getting thumped. And, and uh, so... Uh, Wit's man actually gets beat on a route. I mean, Wit actually gets beat on a route. Wit's guarding this guy. He gets beat. But I'm the safety. Well, I'm on the other side of the field, and he gets behind me too, catches a touchdown. Wit looks at me and says, how did you let him get behind you? I, I'm, I'm angry. I'm really angry at him. But I don't want to lose my job. So I just looked at him right in the eye, and I said, that's raka. That's what that is. (laughs) And guess who's subject to judgment for that? Again, anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of, of the fire of hell. How many times have you called somebody an idiot? Drive. I mean, maybe you did on the way to breakfast this morning, called somebody an idiot. Now think about what Jesus is saying. Think about the standard he's holding out. He goes on to say that this is such an important thing that if you have, if you're in a in an argument, in a riff, in a, in a uh, uh, if, if you're mad at somebody and you're holding a grudge against somebody, don't even bother trying to honor God with your generosity. Don't even come to church. Go take care of the thing first. He says. He said, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek also. We've heard these words before, but how many of you have taken them seriously? I'll be honest with you. When I read these words, even, even preparing for this, I look at these words and I'm kind of astounded at, at the, the lack of seriousness with which I've taken these words. I can't believe, I, and, and the truth is, even now, I have a really hard time believing that that's true. Because that's not the way the world works, Jesus. Anger is, you're supposed to just channel your anger, Right? Or maybe you're supposed to be a stoic and just kind of stiff arm your anger and and, and just tell yourself it doesn't bother you. What is Jesus actually saying? If anybody slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Uh, Earlier this, back in 2020, um, I came upon an artist named Toby and Wigway. Anybody heard of this guy, Toby and Wigway? Very few of you. Okay, you're going to love this. Uh, Seriously, one of the most creative artists out there. Um, it breaks the mold when it comes to hip-hop and rap and gospel. And, and this guy, I think he's a Christian. He, has, he, he wants to make positivity famous. He wants to make purpose famous, and especially back to, with, with some of the people he grew up with in Houston. So this summer, uh, he's paying attention to all the stuff that's going on, and he's really frustrated at all the stuff going on on social media. And so he put out this song, called Try Jesus, and it's a reaction to the words of Jesus. So let's take a look. 
I think most of us have a little bit of that kind of man inside of us when we hear the words of Jesus. We, we say that's a nice idea to live peaceably. We say a nonviolent life seems like, you know, maybe someday when Jesus comes back to rule and reign. But here in this life, before Jesus comes, you got to take things into your own hands sometimes. That's what a man does, right? But remember, you have a destiny. And that destiny is to be shaped into the image of Jesus. How is that possible? How is it possible to become more like Jesus in this area? What are we supposed to do? Well, there's a one-word answer to that that the writers of the New Testament came up with, and that word is patience. James, the brother of Jesus, said this. He said, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing, when you get tested, when you're feeling testy, the testing of your faith produces something. What does, it, what does it produce? Well, it shapes you. It molds you. It forms you. It forms your inner man. Who do you look like in the test if you absorb the complication, absorb the pain? What, what, is it, what does it make you look like? Well, it makes you look like Jesus. And the word, he says, the thing that it produces is patience. And he says, but let patience have its perfecting work let patience perfect you shape you mold you that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing if any of you lacks wisdom he says let him ask of god who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him let him ask in faith without doubting for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind When I first started working at Church on the Move, I thought the, the best job I could have would just be to be a pastor. I couldn't imagine. I, mean, I came from South Georgia, rural South Georgia. I think my dad's church at most had maybe 50 people. He, in fact, had to string together four different churches just to pay his $28,000 salary. I got a job as a pastor. And very soon after, I heard some some people, the next level above me is talking about, you know what, maybe, maybe you have department head in your future. Maybe you could be a department head. And I started putting that as the image of my future in front of me. I didn't get it one time, two times, three times, four times, five different times for ordinary, understandable reasons. If you saw the people who got it, you'd say, yeah, Stephen, that's, that's probably right. But you better believe a seed of bitterness and anger grew within me. A couple of different times, the boss that I was working for took over another department and said, I'm going to go to that department and give you this one. I'm going to recommend you have this one. The second time that happened, the person came back to the department and said, I'm sorry, I gave the other department away instead of this one. See, I mean, right now, it seems so small. Can you, I mean, it's, it seems so small. Things have happened to you far worse than that. 
But can I tell you, that was the thing that made me give up. That was the thing that let this low-grade anger well up within me. And I just said, forget about it. I'm going to keep this job. And who knows what kind of damage is going to happen next. Within a few months, I found myself in an affair with someone on my staff. By the grace of God, I got caught. And God, over the course of the next couple of years, totally redeemed my life. He reached in. He inclined my heart to him and not towards selfish gain. In that season, you know what I had to learn? Patience. In that season, they said, Stephen, two years, no ministry. I said, I'm not going back into ministry, but just within 18 months, I knew I'm supposed to be heading back. I don't know. I mean, church on the move is impossible, but maybe somewhere, some way, someone's going to take me as a pastor. And so I came to Ruth, and I said, babe, you're not going to, um, you're not going to want to hear this, but I think I'm supposed to be a pastor again. And she said, I do not see it. I said, well, I'm not telling you I'm going to go out and search for a job to be a pastor. What I'm telling you is that if it takes five years, ten years, the rest of my life, I'm going to be the kind of man who could be. And that requires patience. You're not going to, don't just listen to what I say. I want you to watch If you see me living in such a way that doesn't seem like it lines up with that kind of man, a man who's more like Jesus, would you tell me? About that time, I started going to the mountains with some dear friends. And as I did, every mountain trip, I'm learning how to deal with anger through patience. Jesus said, you can become more like him James said you can become more like Jesus. Paul said you can become more like Jesus. And the way to do that is through this thing called patience. Now, one one quick thing about how this works. At the core of your being is your will. Your will, your heart, your spirit, your will, all, all kind of represent the same thing. The next outer ring is your feelings. It's your, it's your thoughts. And the next outer ring from that is your body. And then I mentioned at the front of the talk, the next outer ring from that is your soul, the Hebrew word nephesh. It's all of you. How do you change to become more like Jesus? What's well, different than any self-help thing you'll ever read. It's different than what you might think. It does not start simply by having enough will power. There's some studies that showed that uh, willpower is not like a tool. It's not like an engine. You can't just turn it on. It's more like a muscle. They did a a study where uh, two groups of people had to solve this problem that they didn't know was impossible to solve. And the the whole experiment was just to see who was, which group of people was going to last the longest. One of those groups of people had another experiment right before that where all they had to do was the famous cookie experiment, and they just had to resist cookies for a little bit of time. Who do you think lasted longer in the experiment, in the second experiment? 
the people who did not have to resist in the first place. Why? You have a limited amount of willpower. You have a limited amount of willpower. You use your willpower to make choices. Where are we going to go out to eat tonight, baby? I don't know. You're exhausted just making the choice. You have a limited amount of willpower resisting temptation. You have a limited amount of willpower with presentation management. You go for a job interview. You have a limited amount of willpower. But you know what your willpower can do inexhaustively and never get tired? There's one thing. One thing your will can do without ever getting tired. It's, an, it's, it's what your will was created to do. Anybody know? Surrender. 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 You can surrender all day, every day. On your way to work here in just a couple of minutes, something might happen. You're going to get a text message, an email, a phone call. Somebody's going to rub you the wrong way, and you're going to be angry. Being angry is just you're not getting your way. Anything that happens to where you don't get your way is an opportunity to get angry. And when you don't get your way, you can begin to practice patience. How do you practice patience? Simply by surrendering. There's a, a really simple prayer, a really simple prayer. It's a breathe in, breathe out prayer. It goes like this. I can't. Jesus, you can. Or maybe you just say, Jesus, help. Or you might just say, I'm here. You're here. Practice the presence of Jesus in your practicing patience. What's going to happen? Well, that willpower is going to start to outsource your decisions. Right? What you practice becomes a habit. You know what your willpower is terrible at? Your willpower is terrible at overcoming your deeply embedded habits. But if you keep at it, you keep practicing, you keep practicing, you keep practicing patience, someday you're going to be in that situation where that friend of yours wants to come out, that rage friend wants to come out, and guess what's going to happen? The person and the image of Jesus is going to come out instead. Do you know Jesus himself did this? Jesus himself took his will to God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he's going to the cross, he knows what he's there for. His whole life has been leading up to this, and what does Jesus do? He takes his will to the Father. By the way, First of all, he processes his emotions with his friends. And then he processes his emotions with God. He processes his emotions in a safe place. And then he processes his emotions with his father. You think he's just going through the emotions when he says, Father, not my will, but yours be done? When he says, take this cup from me? Do you think he's just going through the emotions? You think that's just there so that we have a nice... Uh, set of words to look at he really is struggling with this he really has the opportunity to be angry but he by the way has spent a lifetime of only doing what he saw the father doing you want to mo know the most incredible feat of human history it's what Jesus went through in those 24 hours 
He surrendered his will to the Father. You know what happened next? An angry mob shows up. Torches, an accusation, an angry kiss, and Jesus is betrayed. Jesus is brought before an angry tribunal. Angry jurors are bearing false witness against Jesus. Does he stand up and defend himself? An angry governor presides over the, the judgment, the final judgment of Jesus, and an angry mob says, crucify him. Then there's Jesus hung there after angry soldiers with violent weapons put him up on display for the whole world to see, naked, accused, falsely accused, shamefully, woefully, cursedly accused. He hung there, surrendered, and anger almost worked. The greatest display of anger the world has ever seen almost worked. It took down the very Son of God. Anger almost worked, but surrender never fails because patience never fails because love never fails. Do you want to become the kind of person Jesus called you to be, the kind of leader Jesus called you to be? You can become more like Jesus, and it's it's as simple today and over the next few weeks at looking at your anger and saying, God, how can I surrender that to you? Here at Church on the Move, we're in a season getting ready for Easter. We're going to begin to practice some of these things. Have you ever had the sensation of being hangry? So hungry you're angry? Well, that happens to me just about every day at a certain time. We're going to do that on purpose together. We're going to fast together as a, as a church, as a church community. We're going to invite you to be a part of it. You don't have to be a part of Church on the Move. If you want a digital copy of this, just text the number 23101. uh, Text the word Easter to 23101. If you want to pick one of these up on the way out, you can. It walks you through how how to have four weekly fasts. If you've never fasted before, it's easier than you think, but it's also way harder than you think, and it's also way better than you think. And then we're going to gather together on the weekend, death and resurrection. Death is the fast, and we gather the weekend and have a communion feast with a bunch of friends. We invite you to consider being a part of that and begin to practice the way of Jesus and practice patience. Before I let you go, I want to pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can be patient because you are patient. In fact, you said patience is the meaning of your name. You're slow to anger. In fact, you said that you make anger distant and compassion near. Help us to be formed more into the image of Jesus. Help us to surrender daily to the power of your Holy Spirit. Those little nudges that say, before you go into the house and let your wife know how you feel or your kids know how you feel, we surrender to you. Lord, help us to become more like Jesus. And if there's anybody in the sound of my voice that has never made that first and ultimate surrender to Jesus, would you help me find them this morning? With every head bowed and every eye closed, maybe that's you. I just described you. You've never made that, that 
definitive surrender to Jesus. But this morning you think this is your day. You want to begin to follow Jesus today. If that's you, would you slip your hand up? Anybody like that? Maybe somebody you invited you or maybe you've been a part of a church for a while. Anybody say, Stephen, I want to begin to follow Jesus today. Anybody like that? Got a hand lifted here in the back. Anybody else? One right here next to me. Thank you for lifting your hand. Thank you. Anybody else? I don't want to miss you. I'll wait just a moment longer. If you lifted your hand, I want to pray a prayer over you. And I'm going to ask you to take a step. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every person who lifted their hand that said today's the day they want to begin to follow Jesus. They want to become more like Jesus. They want to become the man that you created them to be. Today I pray that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit. If you lifted your hand and, if, and even if you didn't, would you, let's all pray this together. Say, dear Heavenly Father, I surrender to you. Whatever that means. Whatever the cost, I trust you. I trust that I can become like you. In Jesus' name, amen.